0: Imagine,
1: demand, and build a world transformed.
2: Hi everybody, Uh, thank you for coming. Today we are having a discussion about institutional racism and the media. Today I am joined by my co-host of Low Society podcast Pisa Coffin and Dr. Clyen Wonka who is a uh, he's, he, he's a researcher on institu- on institutionalized racism in the media. Um, he also has a book coming out as well. Uh, Pisa and I are members of the podcast Low Society and we both make content on YouTube. Um, And I also have a background working in in the media in England here as well. So I definitely have a a few hot takes about this, about this subject as well. Um, Thank you, thank you for coming. Um, Would you like to, does anyone have any opening remarks about the subject? Um, Dr. Clive, would you like to to open?
1: Sure. Um, Sure. So, I've been thinking deeply about um, the events uh, this summer. Um, in Minnesota, uh, George Floyd, and the aftermath of those events um, in popular culture. And one thing I noticed quite quickly was the admission or the recognition of structural racism within a number of media outlets, which was one of the more both surprising but expected outcomes that event. And for someone who studies film, the media, and media institutions, there was something that I've been trying to unpick and explore since that moment, which is our contemporary understanding of what structural racism is, how it's manifest in the media, and this admission that we saw in the immediate aftermath. And I've coming to the understanding that Our ideas with structural racism, and when I say us, I mean those on the receiving end, the structural racism, and the understanding of structural racism by mainstream media institutions are very, very different, different meanings, and also different intentions and manifestations. And that is what I've been trying to explore in my research and conversations with colleagues, and hopefully this evening, is the ways I think we should be critiquing the immediate reaction to this phenomenon called structural racism that we're seeing amongst a number of cultural and media institutions and what the implications are for the battle against racism.
2: Thank you for those opening remarks. Um, I definitely agree, I, I I definitely saw the conversation kind of get a shot of adrenaline after the George Floyd incident occurred. But I was also quite disturbed by some of the ways the media reacted to um, the kind of calls for accountability in that regard. Um, It kind of struck me that quite a few kind of entities were using haphazard um, solutions in order to kind of deflect from, you know, the real kind of concerns that people had about structural racism in the in these institutions, either by kind of haphazardly pushing out representation as as kind of a, a cover for for um, deeper institutional problems, or by kind of making nods to Black Lives Matter or nods to social justice in a very kind of cynical fashion, um, and, and also um, you know there was this kind of. I know that you know Robin Robin DiAngelo's book White Fragility came out a few like a few months like during that whole period as well, and it it kind of made the argument that structural racism is about bad people in positions of power when it's actually about you know it's about institutional and historic forces that enact limiting program. On minorities. It has very little to do with the morality quote-unquote of individuals. It's kind of a system that perpetuates itself Um, and that's, uh, these are kind of the concerns that I've had around, especially around the discourse and and how the media has has reacted in this kind of weird haphazard way that oftentimes doesn't have very much in terms of addressing the deeper systemic issues. Pisa?
0: I more or less just would second all of that. as basically the same thing I would say.
2: <laughs> what do you What do you think, um, Doctor Cloe? Um,
1: I think I'm interested in your um, definition of structural racism and how you feel in certain quarters um, it represents um, a kind of system that's built within institutions of racism because. One of the shifts I'm seeing in my research and my thinking is thinking around the idea of structural racism as being described by the media, at least anyway, as this kind of atmospheric racism. And what I mean by the atmospheric racism is it's been described to me in what I've seen as a racism that is born by a pat mentality within institutional and cultural spaces. Be them in schools, or our legal systems, or our cultural institutions, where there is an atmosphere of racism that takes place when people come together in certain areas, or certain institutions, or public spaces, or private spaces even. And all we need to do is dismantle that structure and that pat mentality and that atmosphere, and racism is resolved. For me, there was a slight problem in that. And the problem is, it seems to de-individualize racism. So we can only pinpoint a particular person who is guilty of racial harassment or racial discrimination. And that is the atmospheric quality. There is no accountability for an individual who is guilty of harassing someone in HR or denying someone opportunities. And in many ways, it's very, very predictable because thinking about Stuart Hall, the um, Jamaican cultural theorist and his idea of incorporation, and he's thinking about hegemonic power and its ability to incorporate and suppress the oppositional force and make it work to its own agendas. And when we're seeing cultural institutions, media institutions, who have been guilty of a long legacy of racism, now begin to use the language of the oppressed with structural racism, We instinctively understand that there will be some modifications to how they understand the language we're using. And the idea of structural racism, I think, is a way of de individualizing their complicity and culpability to racism within institutional space. So I think it's a slightly different take on the way you see things, Andrew. I think there is also some unifications in there. But I am seeing this cynicism in when inherently racist institutions are now using the language of the challenge to racism and what the implications could be as well.
0: You, in some respects, even have a bit of a commodification of the um, sort of aesthetic of anti-racism going on. We see, I mean, you mentioned white fragility, Angie. Uh, That's, I mean, that was a very popular book. It did very well. Um, It, I mean, it discusses a systemic racism, but I, I I don't know that it really actually gets down into a nitty gritty of what it even means by systemic. I read it twice, actually. And I didn't really, I wasn't really particularly impressed by it. We've talked about it on our podcast more than a few times at this point. But um, I guess my question, I, I, I had a question in there. I, I'm thinking, what is in your opinion as somebody researching this what is your opinion on where the actual impetus of sort of how do we okay so how do we tackle this who is actually accountable um and 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 what would be an important um at least preliminary manner of addressing uh what we're getting at here
1: i mean that's such a Difficult questions to ask. I think.
0: I know. I I apologize for it being a far-reaching question, but it is, I mean, it's really hundred in hundred my hundred. mind that was like super important.
1: It is, and um, it becomes harder and harder to do the things that you're suggesting in that question, which mm-hmm. um, uncover and identify the individuals in institutional cultural spaces within the media who are guilty of that racism, and often we need to put our faith as unreliable as it may be is the law and the reason why i think the law becomes very very important is because i'm really um, in agreement with what Angie mentioned about some of the methodologies that she saw in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd which was mm-hmm. the idea of representation we need more representation in particular outlets in the media to remedy what we saw um, on that day. Now, what happened to George Floyd wasn't a lack of diversity. What happened to George Floyd uh, was racism um, that actually resulted in the loss of his life. Now, there's something very, very interesting, but also very, very lamentable in the idea that a man is killed for being black. And our instant response, what I call our rapid response and very, very classic response, is demanding better or more representation in Hollywood, in the media, in people who read our news in the evening or write our stories in um, newspapers. Now, those things are very, very important. I've researched for 10 years about these things. My Mm -hmm. point is, those things are not instinctively connected to what happened to George Floyd. Mm -hmm. George Floyd was a failure of the law There was something inscribed in that police force that made them think what they were doing was lawful. And they'll be protected in some way by the law in their actions. So I was equally disappointed we didn't put our faith and our attention in legal reform, both in the US and in the UK. But equally, I could completely understand why this is much more broader than what happened at that moment but also a long legacy and history and culture and presence of racism in those forms individual institutional cultural systemic but i think the balance of attention in terms of the response was immediately into thinking about the politics of representation and i'm not quite sure that should have been the immediate response at the time I don't want to labour um, answer, but I use the term rapid response uh, in it. And I think what I'm seeing is what I term cultural compensation. Cultural compensation, uh, the methods that power uses often to remedy and respond to demands and uprisings against structural racism, however defined through culture. So we saw very much in the UK, but maybe in the US as well, the immediate sharing uh, black literature um, on social media, mm-hmm. reading your Hawks, read your Angie Davis, read those classic texts that talk about racism. Now those things are really important, but black culture is always in the mainstream, a temporary experience. The mainstream is often only interested in Black culture, in its value, in its promotion, in its recognition, in its highlighting as the aftermath of moments of racial disquiet, which means it's very, very temporary. It often doesn't last their attention, which means we cannot put our faith in cultural conversations to be the long term solution to much, much bigger problems.
2: Um, I just I wanted to say quickly just before I continue on the point um, I've been asked to shout out the um, Shout out the worldtransform.org. if you want to see more content uh, Go there if you want to donate as well There are also possibilities for you to do that there as well And we also urge you to be civil in the comments as well um, That's just some housekeeping that I've been asked to do uh, But back, back to the back to the point um the part of the reason why I, I brought up the um, the idea that, you know, institutional racism isn't necessarily tied to the morality of individuals is because not only, It's also because of my own personal experience. I, I, I worked as a literary agent's assistant for many years before I started um, doing YouTube and podcasts. And um, I was damned from the beginning in that regard because... Um, of of certain backgrounds that one is expected to have and to thrive in those types of industries. The types of people who tend to work in those industries and thrive in those industries tend to come from certain Black backgrounds. Um, There are certain social mores in those industries as well that um, are as a result of those backgrounds and and the types of universities and the the types of um, educational access and all of these different factors. Um, play a role as a way of gatekeeping people who of color out of the process but it, it also kind of um, works around class lines as well because mm-hmm. I was not from the same class background as the people who I was working with. I was definitely not from the same class backgrounds as the people who I was working for either. Um, and these mechanisms often re- they affect obviously black and minority people more because we we make up a disproportionate amount of of the poor and 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 of the working class. Um, and those those barriers aren't necessarily there because of the morality of of individuals. They're historic forces that have kept gate 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 kept people of color from being able to gain prominence in certain positions so i kind of i think it's it's somewhat problematic to lay the blame at the feet of individuals all the time i mean of course there are going to be individual cases of bigotry but the majority of what I suffered while working in these fields wasn't people being outwardly awful towards me, I was dealing with kind of historic forces, social mores, class expectations, um, things that I hadn't gained access to that then became an inhibit- inhibiting factors for me in those kinds of environments. And it's as if the, the, the racism kind of does itself in that regard, it, it's, it's already kind of this pre built mechanism and even though a lot of the people who I worked with and for were very quote-unquote well-meaning white liberals who you know read the Angela Davis and you know were tweeting woke, woke things every day on Twitter and tried their best and were trying to be really good allies, there were still these um, institutional barriers in front of me. And um, a lot of it had to do with these kind of social and and societal forces that already acted as a gatekeeper between me and being able to sort of thrive within these institutions. Um, I think that that institutionalized racism is is something that is, it's been perverted in the current discourse um, because a lot of, like I said, a lot of people think that it's about bad people quote-unquote in positions of power and if we just replace those bad people with quote-unquote good people then things will be better but there's a there's an overall issue with the way things are structured as in the media to begin with and these these forces um that i'm i'm talking about also have a lot to do with certain access that black people are denied in society as a whole in general that then kind of act as inhibitors for Um, for us to thrive in in certain environments. And I I guess, yeah, that's been my my experience with institutionalized racism and the way that it functions.
0: I I don't have anything to add to that. (laughs) That was very, very, well, specific to your experience. But I would, so from my perspective is, I had mentioned the sort of, commodification, a little bit of uh, anti-racism as an aesthetic and as in an affect, that's kind of uh, for me, you mentioned the sort of perversion of the discussion in in the mainstream media. And for me, that's kind of where we start to see how that happens. Um, My opinion uh, there is specifically that we sort of in order to defang what is ultimately uh, a, a very popular sentiment which is that the police shouldn't be killing unarmed black people uh, we sort of turn it into a consumable we sort of turn it into a a thing that we can you know imbue and sort of like purify ourselves or at least feel as though we're taking an action that um we you know we're watching all of the right content on this we're reading all of the right articles and i think this is in line with what you were saying clive um i think that uh, you know we've really i i think that the primary area where a lot of all of we're thinking overlaps is probably in this in the media the media is handling this because it really wasn't like hey so here's the thing like this as far as structurally we could elucidate how police are, are are structurally racist how there are incentives that are in front of these people to you know disregard you know certain i mean really it's against the law to kill somebody <laughs> but um just certain social mores, actual laws etc cetera, etc cetera. and and for me that's kind of that's kind of where i i've kept my focus on
1: i mean
2: i was just going to but- say I also think that that part of the conversation that's obfuscated is the material empowerment of people of color. Um, You know, I I just moved to a new place, um, but I used to live in a kind of shared accommodation with a bunch of people who worked in the media industry as well. And I was listening to a Zoom call that uh, one of my uh, roommates was on and they work in a very sort of creative field. And it was during the George Floyd um, incident. It was about a couple, I think a week or so after it occurred. And, you know, they were all on this Zoom call that was mandatory by their company where they were expressing Black Lives Matter sentiments and talking about how their company needed to do better, even though the majority of the white of the people who work at their company are white and there were no real specifics about how they were going to or, uh, or no real explorations of the issue of why there was um, no sort of diverse presence within their company. It was more just empty platitudes about black lives mattering and about you know the, the horribles of, of, of racism and obviously it's coming from a place of uh, human concern but there was no real material exploration um, done to kind of look at why there is this kind of disparity in terms of black p- kids usually being able to enter these industries post-graduation. Um, and, you know, a lot of it has to do with, you know, the fact that the conversation around material empowerment for black people, whether that be access to education or programs or resources is often obfuscated by the representation question. Um, that's kind of what power uses to obfuscate the uh, the need for material intervention a lot of the time. I remember one of the, I got my literary agency job through a um, program that was specifically meant to help BME. That's BAME, which is like the term in the UK that we use um, BAME uh, put graduates to get into media industries, and you know it was defunded by the Tory government, <laughs> um, and it no longer exists in as much of a meaningful capacity as it used to there are all kinds of material roadblocks for why uh, black people are underrepresented in the media. And I feel like that gets obfuscated through these sort of symbolic gestures uh, quite frequently.
1: I mean, that is one thing I'm in agreement with you on um, holistically. And that speaks to the often conflating of questions of anti-racism with questions of diversity. And um, there is a huge body of research and thinking out there about the ways in which dominant power often uses this idea of diversity as this kind of demonstration of wokeness and progressiveness and responsiveness to um, anti-racist questions. Obviously we both know just today Uh, The Academy have now announced their diversity um, standards uh, based on the UK model, uh, which I've critiqued, um, to respond to what is widely known as structural and systemic racism in Hollywood. And um, we have to wait and see um, what the results from that will be. But that's a classic example of the solution by diversity to the problem, which is racism. Now. You mentioned, Peter, the idea of the quantification of anti-racism, which is something that was overt across those first few weeks in the aftermath of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. And um, if we think about the media as inherently neoliberal institutions, uh, the one thing we know about neoliberalism, it has this very, very sophisticated way of incorporating difference within the limits of power. And this, to um, your point Angie about your class background being a crucial and driving factor alongside your race as well in your exclusion from industry and from institutions and even in that moment of cultural compensation where we're seeing this rush and this rapid response to Represent racial difference in previously kind of white and pristine institutions. Um, history tells us, data tells us, that often it is those with the most cultural capital who will succeed and ascend in these institutions. And sometimes, very frequently, those are interracial questions as well. You know, mm-hmm. the growing and mobile Black ethnic minority middle class um, who often ascend virtue of their class background um, in these particular institutions, which is very, very acceptable to particular neoliberal media institutions as well, and this often creates the kind of cultural spaces that you've experienced, I've experienced as well. So I think it's kind,
2: it's
1: kind of I just want to really I, just I, think, um, sorry, on, I think the um, commodification of anti-racism is probably one of the biggest challenges that we on the left are facing now and how we try to push back from the neoliberalization mm-hmm. of racism. that is for me I think, the area of um concern
2: sorry i think Andy, part ahead. of that is because right i think part of that is because the conversation around um racial progress often creates cross-class subjects Um, which is an issue, of course. And I mean, we are all neoliberal subjects, which is also why I'm kind of sceptical of the idea of of a Black community that exists. I mean, you know, in the past there was definitely a Black community, but now we are all atomized neoliberal subjects. And what the Black community has really become has become sort of a neoliberal category where It's like, I have something in common with Oprah Winfrey because we're black, even though we don't have anything in common because we're not from the same class background at all. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's kind of why I'm skeptical of how these conversations about anti-racism within the media um, often create this cross-class confusion. And I think that a lot of it has to do with just material empowerment and access Um, Those issues are usually the things that act as barriers for people of colour being able to find empowerment, um, empowerment on their own terms. Empowerment that isn't just like a a, a gilded cage of oh here you will be the perfect kind of neoliberal subject, representation of your demographic, however you have to do that on our terms. I think it it, it kind of reminds me of, um, you know, the 1990s when Britpop was like a huge thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And part of the reason why there was this huge boom in in music and culture was because there were grants that were being given out from from the government to, you know, the young entrepreneur, um, I forget what it was, it was like some weird, like, leftover from the Thatcher era thing, but you saw a lot of young musicians and comedians and, you know, taking advantage of that like little tiny bit of material access that they had that then enabled them to, you know, do things like have a band or do things like spend time making music or spend time, you know, pursuing creativity in that regard. And, you know, there was a big cultural kind of boom from that where you had um, music uh, coming from, you know, members of the working class, um, members of a class that oftentimes doesn't have the time to, uh, you know, you have have that kind of access. Am I frozen? We're having technical difficulties. Um, if like the that. mods can hear me, yeah. Maybe add me, add like delete me and then add me back that. Oh, I'm still frozen, <laughs> um, hang on. If, yeah, if you guys maybe try again, deleting me and adding me back to, um, continue while I figure out my, um, figure out my issue.
0: So Clive, mm. <laughs> uh, anything to add to that?
1: Um, I mean, I'm in agreement. Um, with that and um, just thinking a bit more specifically around structural racism um, mm-hmm. in the aftermath of George Floyd and this recognition I think one of the key things that I'm observing which kind of ties with your point around the quantification of anti-racism mm-hmm. it, the use of language and I kind of mentioned this already in regards to the use of structural racism what it means to different people by institutions but certainly in the UK context, we saw in that rapid response, institutions such as Channel 4, the BBC, uh, by others saying, we are an inherently anti-racist um, organization. Yeah, now, I <laughs> now, I don't remember any moment uh, prior to this summer, where you've heard any public institution uh use the word racism or anti-racism within their practices
0: so particularly anti-racism if there's some racial concern i've i've always noticed they've attempted to stay in the area of diversity because generally a diversity concern rather than a racism concern or racial concern so i would but, say i definitely agree mm, with that or
1: underrepresentation. representation or yeah, rep- yeah uh which is a very very euphemistic way of talking about obviously kind of the same thing because what that does, is seems to suggest to us that um, what happens in the institutional space is simply, again, this atmospheric, haphazard arising of the exclusion of particular people along the lines of race or class or gender or others as well
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that it denies the reality that these things are brought into being, okay, racism is performed and the representation is performed by decision making, by individuals, by pack mentalities. So that shift, dramatic shift in language from diversity representation, underrepresentation, sorry, to yeah. structuralism and anti-racism, I think is the key shift that we saw in that period of time. Absolutely. Think, um the implications of that for me are I'm not convinced by the ability of mainstream media organizations to unthink and rethink mm-hmm. that street and legacy of racism within the period of days in the aftermath of George Floyd. Because in the UK, we haven't yet devised constitutionally a language and practice of anti-racism mm-hmm. that is described right in legislation. What we have, as you'll know, is a language of diversity and inclusion. We haven't got that instinctive practice of what anti-racism looks like. So what we then descend into instinctively is our native indigenous practice, which is more diverse, greater representation in particular fields, the visage and surface level image. Uh, racial and cultural and gender difference—that is the key shift that I'm identifying here, which really maps onto your point around the quantification of anti-racism, which is also, in my understanding, the false recognition of racism without doing the deep, deep analysis. What that means, how it manifests, what is its impact on those living on the cutting yeah. edge of structural racism—that takes a generation. That isn't a a record yeah. or a that takes place within a matter of days. So that's why we need to retain a skepticism and cynicism in these months afterwards until we're really convinced that those institutions and uh, organizations have done that deep thinking to re-understand really what structural racism means and um, how it impacts those um, living on the cutting edge of it as well.
0: For sure. Like obviously, just adding you know a, a fist into your avatar on Twitter for your brand account isn't—it's of course not racism, mm-hmm. but that's—I mean, I mean—that's been the extent of what a lot of these public-facing entities have done. And um, I I do want to ask a little bit more about your point on the idea that it's performed uh, on on you know the basis that. I, I do agree with you. Like racism is absolutely something that is performed. It's a it's a an, an action that requires participation. And um oh, oh.
2: <laughs> frozen again, sorry. <laughs> I don't know why it keeps happening.
0: It does require that participation, but I also I wonder what your opinion on like um the incentivization of it sort of is, like how mm-hmm. You know, structurally, when we're talking about, you know, why racism came, arose, like the current form of racism, what we characterize as racism is sort of a descendant of race science, which was sort of an ideological, obviously not real science. It's a pseudoscience mm-hmm. uh, just, justification for you know, slavery in the United States and ultimately, you know, in other places in the world as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that a lot of a lot of what we um what we deal with, uh, as far as, you know, where these things are coming from institutionally are, um, I think that it is sort of a descendant of of the need to justify, you know, some form of exploitation. Um, obviously, um, we're talking, you know, slavery, we're talking, uh, you know, people after the slaves were free, we're also talking about the fact that you know, people don't have the institute or it's not necessarily institutional, but they don't necessarily have the resources to enact any form of class mobility because they're they're coming from literally nothing. They were slaves. They were freed. And oh, my God, why can't they achieve the American dream? Um, I think to some extent um, there is a sort of like incentivization uh, that that keeps people performing these things. And I'd be curious to think, curious to ask what you think of that. Or exactly like what kinds of where that like more or less not just like simply like what do you think the incentive is, but uh, you know, kind of how that that role plays in in uh, in this.
1: So when we say the incentivization of racism within Mm -hmm. institutional cultural space. To think about the media, I mean, I can't help thinking about Cedric Robinson and his kind of classic critique of um, racial capitalism, mm-hmm. um, so the kind of different manifestations of that that we're kind of grappling with now. And um, in many ways, Angie's kind of spoken to to some of them in yeah. the ability of um, neoliberalism to stratify uh, racism on class lines. Um, in terms of the, I think for me. Thinking about the media. What incentivize, what incentivizes racism, is its denial in a very, very paradoxical way. The absence of analysis or recognition of racism, the kind of herbolitic injustice that black and brown people experience within institutions is often, I think, the incentive for the continuation of racism within institutional cultures, be that on-screen stereotypes of um, of black and brown people, the absence of black and brown people in kind of key decision-making roles within how the media is constructed. Um, The kind of um, structural racism that Angie May and the people have been describing um, in the last kind of few months in the off of George Floyd. I think absence often is um, the incentive, the absence of discussion, the absence of recognition, and, what we've seen now in the last kind of two, three months, is I want, to be, I want to be convinced that media institutions have now recognized the modes and forms in which they have denigrated and destroyed and discriminated against black and brown people. Um, but it's always in a fine balance with the need to deny. Right in order to maintain a kind of status quo uh, where blackness, brownness is always the negated identity within these spaces. So I'm not quite sure i answer your question directly, but I think for me the lack of willingness to acknowledge and identify is another way of sustaining um, the kind of racism we're seeing. Mm-hmm.
2: I would, I would argue that these institutions are not incentivized to do this sort of examination. I mean, if we're going to talk about racism as a general concept, it, it's a justifying ideology, one that's been created in order to kind of create an underclass of people to exploit. Um, I mean, that was the original, that was the original reason for the conception of racism in the first place was, you know, it wasn't just for the creation of white supremacy, it was in order to extract labour for things like sugar, cotton and all of the other things that, you know, were part of the economic extraction of chattel slavery. Um, And the racism that still persists in our society acts upon this justifying ideology in order to sort of continue to perpetuate the class division between specific people and the ruling hegemonic kind of um, you know, elite in that regard. And I don't think that these, these, um, these, um, these uh, institutions are incentivized to do this kind of examination that you're talking about. They're incentivized, um, especially because they're neoliberal institutions, they're incentivized to maintain a status, a status quo uh, one that suits the, their their aims and one that continues to perpetuate these mores, um, and that's when I that's why I mentioned the the concept of cross class subjects because through representation that's what occurs. Um, they create cross class subjects, people that you know the larger poor and working class black community are supposed to quote unquote identify with because of this amorphous category of race. When there is obvious class contradictions beneath that form of, of affiliation, um, and I mean the media, had the, these the thing the things that the media perpetuates these hegemonic ideologies about race, whether it be essentialism or you know the idea of putting out bad images or exclusion, even um, all all kind of work to continue to perpetuate um, the standards that have been used to oppress people of colour in society which is part of the reason why I feel like there, there just isn't a real incentive for these um, these institutions to really examine what the issues are and I mean obviously there's quite a lot of pressure for them to sort of show, show that they are but I don't think that there is any real incentive for them to really dig down deep into the structural issues uh, when it's so easy for them to make these kind of tepid symbolic nods to the issue and mm. kind of have the problem go away. I mean, there's an entire diversity industry that exists. I mean, Robin D'Angelo, the writer of White Fragility, makes millions of dollars from, you know, going to do diversity talks at, you know, these different companies, um, mm. you know, getting paid hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of dollars for, um, you know, her sharing her opinions on anti-racism, so the company can then have this symbolic kind of, like, look, we did the anti-racism thing, like, you know, we're not the bad guys. Like, we paid someone, we paid someone $10,000 to come give a talk about diversity. Um, you know, there's an entire industry around this sort of thing. I mean, even within Hollywood, the, the diversity writer and all of these different forms of um, things that have kind of, uh, it's kind of a way of the professional managerial class Managing the problem of racism, um, of, of institutional racism in that regard, um, kind of finding these managerial strategies to deal with like these very deep systemic problems that don't just end with the media, but are issues in our society as a whole, and have a lot to do with the material disempowerment of people of color. Um, so I feel like I feel like I feel like if we want to really get to the the b- bones of this issue, we have to kind of you know, not allow these distractions to obfuscate conversations about real things that are going to make a difference in the lives of poor and working class people of color, real things that are going to be able to give us access in that regard, you know, decent education programs, ability to, the ability to kind of have access to the knowledge and information of, of um, technologies that uh, allow you to thrive in certain industries as well, because that's another thing that's kind of gatekeeped. Um, you know, there, there are plenty of material things that these companies would be doing if they actually cared um, about trying to kind of create diversity that isn't just sort of this sort of tepid nod to to the issue. Have I killed the conversation? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm thinking <laughs> personally. <laughs>
2: um, I mean, I mean, like I remember like I was listening in on the Zoom call and the person My flatmate, they work in like the audio field and, you know, the company was sort of talking about, you know, not having enough diversity and this and that and blah, blah, blah. Um, But the thing is, how many graduates, because obviously you have to have a specific educational background to be even considered for the position. How many graduates uh, are coming out of those programs that are people of color? How many are there? that are people of color how can we you know how can we sort of look at the roots of these issues in that regard because there are all kinds of in, there are all kinds of barriers that don't just start with the institutions themselves it is kind of this thing in society as a whole which is my point i guess
0: yeah and then you ultimately have to ask the question you know if racism is a justifying ideology what is it justifying currently because i mean the question of going back we can answer i think a lot easier but currently what is what is racism as a justifying ideology um justifying is it necessarily an entirely um what's the word tangible like material thing or is it the ramifications of a historical process um i would argue that it very much is that like you put lots of people at a specific disadvantage materially speaking and you end up with um as angie put it an underclass and and you sort of need to have uh, the ability to um say all right well our society functions our society there's there's a reason for you to be emotionally invested in this status quo that you're going to defend and you're going to deny the existence of these types of things. Um, what What are your thoughts on, on on that sort of an aspect of it, ideologically speaking? Um, what are your thoughts on on sort of how this how this uh, ideology is disseminated? Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I mean, you've actually kind of pulled it very very nasty um, yourself. as um listening to you kind of speak, I think the material aspect of racism is crucially important. Um, and I can't help thinking about the response and methodologies mm. that people are now using to try and unpick or even manage those manifestations is Andrew yeah. Andrew. and. It'd be good to get both your points in this, because one of the things I've observed is this, um, I wouldn't call it a new phenomenon, but it's a heightened methodology, which is um, anti-racist training, or unconscious bias training, or racial awareness training. And the more (laughs) insidious things that we can explore in mass, um, institutionalized, a kind of genre (laughs) of anti-racist work. And um, one of the things I thought about in this was, that iconic image uh, during the far right uh, riots early on the summer of um, a black man carrying um, one of the racists um, out from being ambushed uh, into safety in the arms of, um, of the police. Now that became the iconography mm. of the weeks of that movement of that moment. Now mm. thinking about that in the context of um, anti-racist training, there are a lot of people saying, well. Maybe that person will kind of rethink or unthink his racism, given the fact that now being saved by a black person from being um, lacerated. Now, mm-hmm. for me, thinking about questions of social justice, um, I would rather kind of see that person in prison for his crimes um, and for his racism. Now, if in that period of time he begins to unthink or rethink his racism, obviously that's fantastic, but do it in prison. Um, so there is, I think, a social justice question. Uh, to be cynical about, do we try to reform people's thinking around racism, or do we try and get justice in a way that is acceptable mm-hmm. to black people, ethnic like minorities, and their notions of safety? Because the ability to unthink or rethink racism, um, unconscious bias training, and racism training is a very, very long and slow process. I would imagine. Whereas um, justice, uh, on the other hand, should be a very, very rapid response within reason. And that was the two modalities that me and Maniel were grappling with in Alchemart to respond to your kind of, I guess, um, a broader question is what is acceptable to people? They want to come in with edge of racism. Is it the idea of unconscious bias training and uplifting society en maths, or is it the idea of overt uh, and explicit justice? What is acceptable to kind of people? Of course, let's not assume a human black population You think the same. My response may be different to Angie's and many other people as well, but there is something that I found particularly displeasing at some level about this idea of unconscious bias training being the solution to racism. I,
2: I definitely agree. I think that um, I think it comes down again to material empowerment. Part of my problem with the unconscious bias training that's sort of in vogue among the corporate kind of world is the fact that there's something you know innately you know insidious about people who are in a position of power over you as a worker rooting around in your psychology. there's a power imbalance there as you know the owner of capital, the a member of the owning class and somebody who works to create profit for them, then having their psychology rooted into um, by their boss. Um, that that kind of has a bit of a weird weirdness to it that makes me uncomfortable. And again, mostly most of the time it's about liability for the company. it's not necessarily about, you know, trying to improve society. Yeah. And secondly, the reason why I bring bring it back to material empowerment is, if I was materially empowered as a black person, if I also had due recourse in my workplace, that wasn't just HR. HR is there to protect the company, it's not there to protect anybody. But um, if I had due recourse in my workplace, if I was materially empowered, you know, if I was able to have self-determination in that regard then I wouldn't really care about what anyone's unconscious bias is anyway because I'd be able to do my job and I'd be able to be materially empowered in that regard that's their you know headache that's their carrying the fact of the matter is the reason that they have their unconscious biases have impact is because of their institutional position of privilege my lack of material empowerment and my lack of due recourse and I would rather address my lack of material empowerment and my and my lack of due recourse in the workplace then start rooting around in people's psychology that's their business and everybody has some form of unconscious bias we live in a society that programs you to have some kind of unconscious bias even other black people have unconscious bias you know i was i was talking to my um My grandmother about it recently. We were out in London and and she crossed the street because a young black man was walking past her. And, you know, she's Nigerian, she, you know, hears horror stories about England and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And even she has the unconscious bias as an elderly black woman because that was what she was taught growing up. Those are the images that she saw growing up. So I don't think that rooting around inside people's psychology is the answer. I think that dealing with the material issues that result um, and allow those unconscious biases to have any kind of power is what we should really be focusing on as the left. Um, I think that corporate diversity training is incredibly pernicious. And I also think that it's something that ends up creating more problems and more division and, and hostility and more resentment among people who otherwise as workers have more in common with each other than they do with the owning class, um, which is why I, I kind of, uh, I find that kind of thing very, very pernicious.
0: I would say I have another thing to to, to maybe ask about here. Uh, my thought is, I mean, the idea that let's say, I mean, obviously in the way that the system works right now, we can't really totally like topple the sort of um, the way that justice is applied. I mean, we can ask a question like, what is justice? What what are we attempting to accomplish with justice? But I, I, I'm, I have a, my thought is I'm a little bit inherently suspicious with trusting the law to sort of sort out uh, anti-racism when the law is also kind of like the people who enforce the law currently are where, you know, the George Floyd type incident, like they're the instigators of that incident. They're, they're repeatedly sort of uh, in in the the driver's seat, so to speak, with this type of thing, and and I, I do understand how if we were to take these types out of the general populace, and and perhaps imprison them, like uh, that. I mean that that at least stops that person from doing it. But I'm curious as to how specifically that addresses it systemically, because the system itself, um, the the police themselves are, they're, they're actors within, a, they're moving parts, they're part of a whole, they're, and if we're ultimately trusting the law, I'm curious being that they're the enforcers of the law that are, are enacting the sort of atrocities that we're talking about here. I, I'm curious, how do we move forward uh, from the perspective of, hey, you know, we leverage the law against these people when they are in fact the people who are supposed to be enacting those laws in
1: Yeah, I'm with you and um, I do share your trepidation with that as well and um, I'm trying to think for a moment in a much more broader uh, global anti-racist struggle than Mm -hmm. the North Atlantic project or the kind of uh, UK projects as well because Laws, of course, are kind of bound up in notions of democracy. Yeah, uh, which mean different things, different regions, and different people. Absolutely. Um, uh, what is um, lawful in the states uh, is obviously different in the UK. Will be different in South Africa. Will be different in other nations as well. So, I do share that skepticism that we don't put too much faith in the very legal institutions that have for. Uh, Decades and decades and decades perpetuated the very racism of a critique. Yeah,
0: they're, they're the actors. They're the people doing this, so to speak.
1: Mm. And that does create a conundrum, a, a problem for thinking about, again, a global anti-racist movement that had due regard for different understandings and conceptions of what is legal, what isn't. What is democracy? What isn't that? Um, mm-hmm. That's a huge challenge and I haven't got the answer to that. But as a mean, no, response, no one person is going to. So. <laughs> but as a short response, um, and maybe a provocation for, um, for further discussion, both online and offline, uh, is how does one sustain a question of a global racial justice agenda when at some level we need to kind of put our faith in a legal system that's done so much damage to us.
0: Yeah, that I mean, that's kind of that's what I'm really I I like. That's where I have a, a bit of a hang up on on this idea, because observing these incidents repeat over and I mean, we literally deal with, you know, we, we see a media hype at least for and obviously it's not an entirely genuine media hype on account. They do a lot to minimize certain aspects of it. Um, but we end up seeing the same cycle go over and over, and and for me, it's it's. I feel as though there needs to be some kind of large scale change that, um, that is maybe not like we need some form of I think populist movement oriented around this, and I would say that obviously BLM is a manifestation of that sentiment, but ultimately we're. We're kind of seeing it defanged by again, to go back to the media representations and the commodifications of anti-racism. They've sort of the media has been uh, managed to sort of redefine what BLM is in some respects or perhaps create a a sort of spectacular image of what BLM is um, that they have a little bit more control over. Um, they're allowed they're well not they're allowed they're more or less writing their own uh, their check their own check here as to what you know these sentiments can ultimately lead to it was abolished the police at the start it turned into defund the police pretty quickly I think because the media characterized the idea of abolishing the police in a certain way and I'm not necessarily saying that abolishing the police is possible or even something that necessarily everybody wants but I mean, that's an instance of what is more or less a radical demand being, you know, dumbed down into a more um, in-system what's possible today or tomorrow type demand, which ultimately, like, in some respects may even not necessarily be helpful at all. If we defund Mm -hmm. the police, we create maybe a power vacuum instead of, you know, addressing some form of systemic thing. And I, I ultimately, I think I'm going around in circles in here a little bit. And I apologize for that. But uh, yeah, I ultimately, I find that when we're, it does, like, to what extent are we, are we, you know, signing our own death warrant by by taking the same type of systemic, uh, you know, putting our trust in the system? And to what extent are we bound to it? I guess that that's, that's, I'm sure a balance that you know, you're not, not one of us is going to be able to come up with like an actual, like, yeah, we'll do 60-40 or something like that. But yeah, that's my, that's, that's my concern. Yeah, go ahead.
2: I definitely think that um, my major concern is how conversations about anti-racism now seem to be doing the job that racism once did in the Mm. sense that it creates essential categories, it obfuscates the material conditions that black people are currently facing. It also kind of creates an avenue for cross-class subjects to hijack the conversation in that regard. And it also justifies the poor material conditions that black people are under by using symbolic kind of um, gestures to Obfuscate the problem. Um, I think that we need to radically think the way that anti racism functions, the language around anti racism, the demands of anti racism. I think we also need to re- radically rethink the idea of a black community in that regard because we are all neoliberal atomized subjects. You know, back in the day, the black community existed very much, there was the church. There were different activist organisations, there were, you know, all kinds of different places in the real kind of um, collective space where the black community operated and was legitimate. But now, you know, we're now seeing the black community being atomized by neoliberalism in the way that everybody is atomized by neoliberalism um, and by the neoliberal mode. And now when you think black community, you're thinking digital spaces or characteristics that you have, arbitrary characteristics that you have in common with cross-class subjects a lot of the time, you know, Black Twitter being, you know, that kind of space, you know, Black celebrities and the sort of position that they occupy politically within this sort of Black consciousness. I think that there are a lot of things that we need to radically rethink in order for the goals of anti-racism and for the goals of general working class solidarity and and people being lifted out of poverty and the goals of the left um, to manifest themselves. Because right now we're up against something incredibly formidable and something incredibly insidious that's kind of able to derail all of that kind of energy into what then ends up becoming something that atomizes us and something that kind of devolves into the logic of neoliberalism which is market logic, the marketization of all aspects of life, signifiers, um, you know, spectacle, all of these, all of these different aspects kind of end up um, obfuscating the real, some of the real material issues that that black people are facing. I mean George Floyd, the reason that they, you know, pounced on him in the first place is because he was. He wasn't. He like forging checks for twenty dollars. Who has to do it that? Was a like count, poor people. It was
0: a, yeah. Exactly. It was a counterfeit twenty dollar bill. I think he was trying to pass.
2: Yeah, yeah. The majority of the people in who have been who are picked on by police, the majority of the black people who are assailed by the police, the majority of the black people who have been killed and lost their lives are people who also were dealing with major economic. Um, major, major economic deprivation and that economic deprivation is then exploited through the racism that we suffer, like the places where you see the highest police presence in London, for instance, are usually in poor neighbourhoods, neighbourhoods that are low income. You won't go to Kensington and see police officers, you know, literally around the blocks but I was in I was in Kilburn yesterday and there was a huge police presence and yeah Kilburn has a lot of black people who live there but it's also quite a multi cultural like part of London and the poverty is what leaves people vulnerable the, the lack of economic access the lack of access to decent quality of life is what leaves people vulnerable to these kinds of you know attacks on their life and attacks on their humanity and attacks on their ability to thrive and, and be be normal and I feel like as the left, one of our primary primary objectives um, I don't I can't even believe I have to say this in 2020 but it kind of does seem as if the left has sort of lost its way a little bit but our primary objective should be to empower people materially um, and to and I feel like so much of that fervor for material empowerment, you know, gets lost in in the mire. I mean, there's no anti-racist movement of the past that believes that the goal of anti-racism could be achieved under capitalism. It's the reason why people like Martin Luther King were socialists. It's the reason why, you know, there was a deep deep anti-capitalist sentiment within these movements because the goals of anti-racism are deeply at odds with the goals of the current system as it exists right now. And I feel like a lot of what we're seeing is people trying to manage the problem of anti-racism within the current systemic paradigm and that runs into a lot of, of, of tension and issues and um, I feel like it's, it's a conversation that's largely obfuscated because of this kind of rigid, rigidly constructed uh, neoliberal identity politic that has kind of over overridden the, the conversation about anti-racism within the quote-unquote black community and in also other communities too. Um, but yeah, I guess that's how I see it. Um, we've been here for an hour now, so do we have any closing remarks? Is, is there anything that anyone wants to say in order to kind of close out the conversation and, and you know, put, or to respond or anything?
1: Um, well, just very briefly. Um I think for me as someone who studies the media um, which kind of ties on both the points you're making and I'll be brief is this idea of the of anti-racism um, and its manifestation in the media and um, what I term cultural compensation. Um, I'm thinking those two things are or will interact in very very powerful ways uh, to degrade what is possible for the anti-racist movement. And us thinking very skeptically about pulling our faith, not just in the, law, but even in the media, to be the response and solution uh, to these problems. And obviously, of course, one manifestation is diversity, which you're kind of seeing more and more as a result. I think it's a time now where we really have to kind of push back against the fallacies, I think, that are like, just within that model or industry, or genre, because those things for me are not indexed to a truly anti-racist praxis within mm. the media. Yeah. Thank
2: you very much. Peter?
0: I, I, I more or less agree with that. Like, I think, uh, I do think that there is definite need for more skepticism, uh, particularly uh, in areas on the left that uh, you know, are sort of, I think there's a little bit too much acceptance from the media narratives that we've we're seeing. I think that the left has, you know, you see X company say like, you know, X slogan. I don't want to say any specific slogan because I don't want to, I don't want to imply that I'm against any of these slogans, but you end up getting a lot of of people who just sort of accept that and like, yeah, we're doing this. we're we're along those we're, we're along the lines of that. like they, they reusing, they're using the reusing images that they see there. and and it is it's a skepticism in these institutions that ultimately like we do need to be putting forward. I, I very much agree with that, I think a skepticism in 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 the law, skepticism in the media, skepticism in all of this. And I, I think to Angie's points, the best things that we could be trying to do, in order to unite people across these types of uh, anti-racism movements is ultimately exactly what she's saying. What, what can we do to materially empower people of color, um, particularly people of color of working and, and poor class? Uh, and ultimately, like, you know, those things actually do, they, they create cross-racial solidarity because they aren't necessarily just the interests of people of color however it they disproportionately Mm -hmm. help people of color so in some Mm -hmm. respects i think that that's something that we could be doing a little bit more of as well the solidarity aspects of it um yeah i i I think that there's a a lot in common with 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 everything we've all been saying today and i think Mm -hmm. um obviously there's there's some areas i think that anybody is going to you know find some difference some disagreement but ultimately skepticism solidarity that's that's the way to go
2: <laughs> i definitely agree that um anti racism is a universal fight i also one of the areas that i of tension for me has definitely been the way that the conversation has been like essentialized and racialized in a way that makes it seem as if it's only you know a thing that affects those people, those racialized, that the racialized other, basically over there. Uh, I definitely agree with your point that anti-racism is a universal struggle. And I feel like, um, again, a lot of the movements of, movements of the past around, that were centered around anti-racism understood racism, or at least grew to later on understand racism, and anti-racism is a, a universal struggle. Um, and uh, I think the more people see that, the better, um, it is, and the more it becomes less about racialized other, quote unquote ally, the more kind of yeah. uh, the more the more kind of energy that we will have around around these these causes.
0: Helping our fellow human beings is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, any any
2: last words? Anything anyone want to say? All right. I <laughs> think you. of. <laughs> Thank you, guys, in the audience, very much for listening to this chat. I had a really great time. We've all had a really great time talking to you. Thank you for all of your comments. Um, sorry that we didn't have time to get to questions, but we hope that you um, enjoyed it. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Clive. Um, we really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Peter. I guess even though I'm going to see you later on anyway. <laughs> um, and, and thank you, thank you to everyone in the audience, and thank you to um, thank you to the the World Transformed for for having allowing us giving us the platform to have this discussion, do visit the website. Do make a donation if you're able to. Um, that definitely helps out. Um, thank you very much, and we shall chat to you later. Goodbye. Bye.
1: View the full TWT20 program and become a supporter today to help us deliver political education all year round at the